0: Hey, everyone, you are listening to the Divergent Conversations podcast. We are two neurodivergent mental health professionals in a neurotypical world. I'm Patrick Cassell.
1: And I'm Dr. Neff.
0: And during these episodes, we do talk about sensitive subjects, mental health, and there are some conversations that can certainly feel a bit overwhelming. So we do just want to use that disclosure and disclaimer before jumping in. And Thanks for listening.
1: As autistic ADHD business owners, Patrick and I both understand the importance of promotion and doing it in a way that feels authentic and genuine. If you are a neurodivergent business owner and you would like to place your services or products in front of a neurodivergent audience, we are now opening up our podcast for sponsorships and we're providing a 10% discount code for neurodivergent business owners. So if you are an autistic or ADHD business owner, and you'd like to get in front of our audience, reach out to Divergent Conversations Podcast at gmail.com for more information.
0: And now we are going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors.
1: Workplace communication can be messy. Considering the lens of neurodiversity can be helpful for understanding this. Maybe you found yourself frustratedly typing per my last email in an office communication, perplexed about how a colleague or client doesn't seem to understand your very clearly written email. Consider this, visual information processing isn't everyone's strength. Perhaps a quick call can make a world of difference. Or how about including a video or a voice message with your email? And this technology exists.
0: Simple steps like these can make your work environment more accessible and bring out the best in everyone. Tula Consulting is on a mission to help organizations build more neuro-inclusive products and work environments. Tula does this by bringing curious minds to solve curious problems. Find out more by visiting tula neurodiversity.org. That's T U L A neurodiversity.org. Thanks for hanging around, and now we're jumping back in. Hey, so we are about to do an episode on RSD today, which I think we are going to turn into a two-part episode. One, because there's so much to cover. Two, because Megan just wrote a 170-page workbook on the subject. Three, because I am unbelievably jet-lagged and haven't slept in days, and Megan is not feeling well and is sick. So we're going to do what we can today to kind of jump into the introduction to this topic, but... A lot of you submitted questions to our Instagram. A lot of you submitted questions in general, and we want to cover all of them. We just may not get there today, but this is certainly a topic that we are going to circle back to. So because Megan just wrote a 170 page workbook, I'm going to turn it over to you to kind of set the stage.
1: Yeah. Well, the one problem is when you've been swimming in the literature, it's hard to know where to start the conversation. Um, so, yeah, how do I synthesize RSD? Well, RSD stands for rejection sensitive dysphoria. Um, yeah, I guess I'll go over the history of it briefly. So it was coined by um Dr. William Dotson, who, if you don't know who that is, like I recommend Googling him. He's got a lot of really awesome articles up. He's got a lot of webinars that are free through Attitude Magazine. And he's like done a lot in really emphasizing kind of the emotion regulation struggle that often happens with ADHD. Um, But yeah, he's the one that coined RSD, although you could actually go back to the 60s and there was was a psychiatrist before him, Dr. Paul Wender, who was describing symptoms that now we realize are RSD. He's using the language of atypical depression. But looking back, we actually see like, okay, those, that was undiagnosed, uh, often undiagnosed ADHD um, and it was RSD and emotion regulation struggles that he was describing. So it's there have been breadcrumbs of this in the literature since the 1960s, but it's really in the last 20 years or so that it's become an actual term. It's not a diagnosis. It's not something you need to be diagnosed with. It comes out of the ADHD literature, so there is some debate like, is this a specifically ADHD thing? Um, and there's several people that say, yes, this is like a distinctive ADHD thing. Um, so that's the kind of, I guess, clinical definition of RSD. Oh, I guess what it is. So so the question that Dr. Dodson um, would ask his, his, and he's a psychiatrist, he's not a psychologist, he's a psychiatrist, but what he'd ask his people when they come in is this question. For your entire life, have you always been much more sensitive than people you know to rejection, teasing, criticism, or your own perception that you failed or have fallen short? And he said 99% of ADHDers would have this like, yes. And not just yes, but like, oh my gosh, I feel like you know something about me that I've been so embarrassed to tell the people in my life. Um, And then- as about a third of ADHD say this is the hardest part of ADHD to live with. So it's pretty significant when we think about kind of the clinical picture of ADHD. Okay. I'll take a breather there. So that's, I guess the, the clinical definition is it's a really intense physical, emotional response to the perception of rejection or even like, I guess, self-rejection in the sense of like, I didn't live up to my own standards or bar. Um, yes.
0: And this is very different than other forms of rejection. I think that's important. Like you, you went over that in your, um, was it misdiagnosis Monday that you created the diagram for recently?
1: Yeah. So I created a Venn diagram comparing like what is normative rejection sensitivity and then what is RSD. So, and I, that's actually typically where I start the conversation. I think that's why I was like, Oh, I don't know where to start the conversation. I usually start with like the evolutionary history. Um, Rejection sensitivity is like a human experience, and thank goodness it is. So, if we look at it from an evolutionary lens, the idea that belonging to a group literally meant survival for most of human history. It's um, that, you know, we're pack creatures, and that's we're not the biggest or strongest species, but it's our ability to think together, to be together, to problem solve together. That has meant humans have survived so the thinking goes and this is you know any evolutionary psychology is going to be an oversimplification but kind of the thinking goes our so our anatomy hasn't caught up right so if we perceive rejection um we can experience that as a threat to belonging therefore a threat to survival on a very kind of automatic level because it's it's like it's baked into our dna And so we haven't caught up to the fact that we don't actually have to belong to the group to survive in modern life, but our body chemistry or our nervous system hasn't caught up to that. So I like to frame like rejection sensitivity through that lens of, yeah, this makes sense as a human experience. Um, And it's a spectrum. Some people have really intense. So like if you have RSD, you're going to have a really intense rejection sensitivity, whereas other people have more mild rejection sensitivity. Um, but yeah, that is what I did on the vent diagram and the articles I walk through. Like, this is what normative rejection sensitivity looks like. And this is what RSD looks like. Because RSD is above and beyond that normative sensitivity to rejection.
0: Yeah, thanks for setting a stage like that. Because I think it's important to delineate between the two. Like, it's absolutely a process of human experience to feel hurt when they feel rejected or to feel vulnerable or to feel insecure or to feel unsafe. But this takes this to a whole new level, right? Because the, the symptomology, the the struggles that come with RSD can really intensify very quickly and be unbelievably debilitating.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Yes. Debilitating. And I like, yeah, I think that captures it. And that is part of it. Like, that's one of the ways I distinguish between like RSD versus normative of how much is this influencing the person's decisions or daily life? Yeah. Uh, And if like a fear of rejection, a fear of putting ourselves out there um, is significantly influencing our decision, that means that has a lot of control over our our day to day. And typically it's not a great thing for our well being when fear is controlling or when we're... Um, There's a lot of avoidance that can often happen for people when they have RSD, like avoidance of social situations or putting themselves out there for like a job promotion. So there can be career implications, Uh, romantic implications. Like I can't, I can't even imagine asking someone out on a date, right? What if I'm rejected? So yeah, it can be really debilitating.
0: I see it show up a lot in the coaching that I do because of the entrepreneurial side of my business with all of them with a lot of my ADHD um, coaching clients where it's really hard to even put themselves out there on social media. It's really hard to create content. It's really hard to um, put their own spin on something because God forbid someone comes in and critiques it or says something that really sends them down that that shame spiral.
1: so I actually just had a really interesting consultation around this. i I'm, I'm- Right now I'm working with a psychoanalyst because I'm wanting to, um, this is a little bit of a divergent trail. I'm wanting to, so in, as a psychologist, when I work one-on-one with people, I have a relational framework for the work I do. And I realized having a framework is really helpful. So I'm wanting to figure out how to adapt that relational framework to what I do as a public psychologist. So I've been consulting with a, a lot of people consult with like business coaches, business coaches. I'm consulting with a psychoanalyst to figure out how do I bring a relational framework to the work I'm doing? but um, <laughs> <when laughs> part of what came up was this I, i've realized in writing this workbook that rsd is probably the number one block when it comes to so, especially social media because social media is just such a vicious space right now um it can be i shouldn't make global statements it can be um and one thing i, w- I was talking about was how as an autistic person my ideas and my emotions are not separate. So, as an autistic ADHDer, right, like that, and I see that a lot with autistic people. Our ideas and our emotions, our ideas, our values, and our personhood are so integrated. So, when I put my ideas out there, I'm putting a lot of myself out there, and then you layer on top of that RSD. Damn, it's hard.
0: It is. That that's such a a great way to. To kind of just put that out there too. And I know that you've been on the receiving end as as I have too. Your audience is significantly bigger. So you probably receive more of it. But I've been on the receiving end of text messages with you where someone said something nasty or really like offensive or just inappropriate and how debilitating. Why do I keep using that word? How painful that... I feel
1: debilitated today.
0: (laughs) I do feel like... I I don't know. I feel like my brain is moving at like...
1: Yeah. We're both struggling.
0: But how painful that experience has been for you and how it makes you kind of retreat inward. Yeah. uh, And then avoid.
1: It does. And actually, so I just recently switched things up and it's actually been so good for my mental health. I like... The way I joke about it is that I've emotionally broken up with social media. So because what I was noticing, I noticed a few things and it's so helpful to have the RSD lens. Like probably for the first six months when I was growing, it was really exciting. I'd open the app. I'd be excited to see like how many, like, you know, cause I had these little posts that would just go viral and it'd be exciting to see that. And then it, it shifted to where I'd open the app and I would dread like, oh no, did it go viral? Yeah. Or like I would, like my stomach would drop every time I opened the app or every time i open a dm or the comments like half the time i literally can't open the comments because i would be, i would feel so stuck of like what am i going to see 99% of the comments are really incredible things to read but of course those aren't the ones that stick to my brain it's it's the 1% of um and and Again, I, I want to tease it apart. Some of the comments that are critiques have been really, really good learning experiences for me. And then some of them are just like rude and unkind and come with a lot of hostility. Um, and I do value the ones that are hard to take in, but where ha- that those have been good learning experiences for me. Um but yeah, I got to a point where I, I would feel physically sick <clears throat> opening the app. So I, what I've done is I've turned comments off. I have an auto DM and I, I will go days without opening the app. So I will open it on Monday and Wednesday when I post and I, you know how you you can see on your phone how much time you've been like, I, I spend like five minutes a week on Instagram and it's amazing. Um, and I feel like I have so much of my nervous system back. I have so much of my mental real estate back. Um, and I'm reinvesting that I'm, I've, I've launched my more community oriented Membership and I'm reinvesting that energy in people who are really committed to showing up and engaging authentically. And I cannot explain what a difference that has made for my mental health.
0: I'm really happy that you've done that for yourself because I know the amount of energy it takes. I also know how impactful it becomes. And it becomes this situation where you have, I typically in these moments will shut down, I will avoid. I'll turn everything off. I have to disconnect from everything. And then you're right. There's like this fearfulness of even opening the app back up. There's this like overwhelming dread sensation of like having to look at anything where you may perceive it in any sort of way that feels um, critical or and not in a bad way because criticism is not always a bad thing like you mentioned. But there are just people who like to just say stupid shit just to say stupid shit. And you have free reign to do that on the internet. So it becomes really hard for people who are in online practices, who are therapists, who will have to network virtually, who have to show up online because that can really intensify very quickly. And all of a sudden it leads to that shutdown or, or that disconnection.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I love how you're connecting it to entrepreneurship. Cause you're, I think, I think there's a lot of particularly ADHD entrepreneurs and RSD is a very ADHD thing. And, and that, like that double-edged sword of, yeah, like you have to put yourself out there to be an entrepreneur and oh my goodness, if you put yourself out there, you're going to face criticism. You just are like, there's, you, you can't please everyone. And that's something I like, that's a mantra I remind myself, but it's, but when you have RSD, you want to.
0: Yeah, you're right. And that's why I keep bringing up the entrepreneurial side is because so many ADHDers that I know are entrepreneurs and it makes sense like it works with the way the brain uh, functions and the creativity and the spontaneity and all the innovation and like it's also really challenging because it is about showing up. And you mentioned something before that's sticking in my mind about like the interconnection of of like the interwoven thought, feeling, experience for autistic people. And I get that very much. And so much of ourselves when we put ourselves out there in that way is like, this is an extension of how I'm feeling and how I'm moving through the world. So for it to be picked apart at times of like, oh, well, this is inaccurate or this doesn't sound right. Or like, I don't like the way this came across. All of a sudden it becomes this like sensation or this experience of my personhood, like my my sense of self is being under attack right now and that makes me want to like bury my head and hide.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then again, I guess to bring about to the AUDHD experience, like another thing I see and I experience as an autistic person is like the fear of putting something out there and it being factually wrong. Like, I think that's one of my biggest fears. And I see that with a lot of autistic people. Like, what if I write something and then in five years, new research comes out and like that language and that like... I've been talking to my spouse a lot about my, my business has just become a huge source of stress. I've been working way too many hours and I'm chronically sick. So it's something has to change. Um, and one of the things I was realizing and talked with my spouse, the reason I'm so stressed is I'm frantically, because I have this, this membership that I've historically published a workbook a month. That also means I've got like 20 workbooks that I'm like, what is wrong in that, that I now want to go back and update because the idea of like, Anything being out in the world that has my name on it that might be factually wrong from an autistic lens is also like very unfathomable.
0: And I imagine how unmanageable that becomes too. When it's like, oh, I have a 170 page workbook. Now I have to go back and add or edit and revise and like very time consuming, obviously. But, you know, Luke is obviously a a godsend too here. So,
1: yes. Yes. (laughs) That's right the other one. Um, But yeah, so it just, I think especially the autistic ADHD experience, it gets complicated because it's, there's a lot of different layers that we can feel rejected or criticized. And I I think, so this I think is a really important part of RSD. Um, And I think this becomes an important part of learning how to work with RSD. When our brain is hypervigilantly scanning for signs of rejection, what it means is that like the wiring around that is going to become like in the neural pathways are going to become really forged around like perceiving rejection, which means we're going to perceive it when it's not actually there. And this is where I think partnerships and friendships really suffer of someone might like, maybe someone, well, let's say it's two ADHDers, right? So like someone forgets to call or someone forgets like, because working memory, it's, it can be a struggle and the person with RSD that might trigger like, that person doesn't care about me and it can trigger so many narratives when it's really like, Oh, something came up and, and it, it, they forgot. Right. Uh, And I think that is part of what causes so much pain around RSD is it's like someone is perceiving it chronically when it's, when they're not actually being rejected.
0: That's, that's what I come across the most too. When people are asking questions around RSD is like, well, if I'm moving through the world where I'm constantly feeling this pain of rejection or experiencing it this way, how do I then move through the world? Because Mm -hmm. it's so hard to maintain friendships, working relationships, professional relationships, etc. When I'm experiencing RSD so intensely in all of these situations.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it, it For a lot of people, it's like, okay, it's easier just not to put myself out there. It's easier right. just not to be in a relationship. It's easier to make my world small. And that, that's a really sad solution.
0: It is because there's so much, there's so many feelings of isolation and loneliness and, and disconnection as there is for a lot of neurodivergent people. So intentionally um, shrinking your world to protect yourself from potential harm. It's really, really hard.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. We haven't even talked about that aspect of RSD. Of, um, and this is why, like, you also hear autistic people talk about RSD. I'm really curious. We haven't seen a study on this, but I'd be curious if you did a study that controlled for the ADHD because we know so many autistic people have ADHD. Would like purely autistic people would they still have RSD? I'd love to see a study on that. Um, but the neurodivergent experience of just perpetual misattunement, like a lot of reject, like we have had more rejection. So that's another complicating factor, right? We're more likely to perceive it, but partly that's because we are more likely to have experienced social victimization and rejection. Um, And then it becomes this kind of vicious feedback loop of if we show up anticipating rejection, we might have developed psychological defenses and ways of being in the world that actually make it more likely for us to be rejected. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's vicious.
0: This we've talked before about like how we always lay out the, the pain points because so much mm-hmm. of the experience is pain points, honestly. But if we're saying this right, and then we take a step back from the clinical lens for people to say, okay, this is my experience. This is my world. This is every day. This is how I move through relationships. This is how I perceive, um, conversation and feedback. What do we do?
1: Yeah, no, so there, I mean, um, there, there are things we can do so, and I'm going to kind of put it in two buckets, um, psychopharm, psychopharm psychopharmological, okay, big words and brain fog don't mix well today. Um, and then psychological treatments or therapeutic, like more traditional talk treatments. So, um, and, and again, this, this comes from Dr. Dodson's work, but he has talked about there. So there's a class of medications um i'm gonna actually look it up so i make sure i'm using the right words um the it's a not it's a non-stimulant medication that is it's a class of medications that's sometimes used for for adhd um so alpha agonist is the class and um clonidine and guanfacine are the two medications within that class um both okay this is really technical but both have about a 30% response rate. So a response rate when we're talking about medication is um, kind of significant reduction of symptoms when the person's on it. So 30% isn't great, but these two medications are different enough that if you try one and it doesn't work and you try the other, there's about a 55 to 60% response rate that one of these will work for you. Um, That's actually a pretty good response rate when it comes to medication. So, And Dr. Dots, and again, he is a psychiatrist, but like he will talk about how he's worked with people who've maybe been in like psychoanalysts for 10 years. RSD wasn't touched. They go on medication and it's like, they ask a girl out for the first time or they apply for that job. Like that, it provides emotional armor Mm -hmm. that they needed. um, A, to just get out of that avoidance, but B, to actually be able to engage like the talk therapy tools we, we often need some sort of armor or just regulation to be able to engage the tools that are useful. So um, I think that's a really helpful frame just to realize like there are medications out there that might be helpful for some people.
0: That's, that is definitely helpful. And then, you know, on the other bucket, the psychological framework and, and toolkit that we're talking about, what are strategies that you think are useful?
1: So, yeah, like a lot of kind of the traditional emotion regulation strategies, but then like a little bit more target targeted, um first of all, I think learning about the rejection sensitivity lens, learning, I say this a lot, and sometimes this gets big reactions, but like, we have to learn to not always trust our minds, like our minds are not always helpful sometimes like totally yeah, they're. Some, our minds love attention. And so sometimes it'll spew the most mean, negative, alarming things at us to get our attention. Um, and this is one area where I think learning to not trust our minds becomes really important realizing, okay, I am prone to have like a rejection goggles on or a rejection lens on, which means I'm going to see it when like, maybe my partner isn't actually trying to reject me, or maybe my boss is genuinely giving me construct like is intending good for me in this constructive feedback. Um, so I think one really getting clarity on that lens so that we can identify when that's on so that we can unhook from it a little bit more. Um, I I would say that's the first step. Um, other steps like emotion regulation strategies. So again, if we put this back into the perspective of a threat response, um, our, our nervous system, our stress state, our fight, flight, freeze, fawn, what, wherever we go in our nervous system is going to be activated when we're perceiving rejection. So, um, I, I'm a big fan of like nervous system mapping, which I think that comes from polyvagal theory. I don't love all of polyvagal theory, but I like this idea of nervous system mapping of like, let me map where I am in my stress response. Um, and then figure out what tools you need. So if you're someone who goes like, Hyper arousal, you would need down regulation strategies to kind of help cool the body off. Um, so motion regulation strategies. And then also things like knowing your rejection triggers, um, knowing your like what I call raw spots. Well, I didn't come up with the term, but raw spots. Like what are those, raw spots are those areas in our life where maybe we have some attachment wounds or some relational wounds. So when they get bumped, they pull a big reaction from us. Getting a lot of clarity about like what are your raw spots, why, what's the history of those, what happens to you when those get activated. Um, so also like a ton of insight, right? Insight into your relational patterns, into your psyche. Um, I'll stop there. That that was a bit. There's, I'm sure. Uh, those that. those are good
0: to start out with, so that people can implement this stuff and start, you know, doing their own research or incorporating these into their day-to-day because I think it's important to be proactive too because I think you're mentioning so many important tips right now and the raw spot suggestion great suggestion right because if you know what creates these triggers for you then you can work on you know preventing or at least putting into practice something that will help regulate when you're going into events like that or moments like that I don't love I actually don't like at all and I just want to be clear about this uh CBT, but R-E-B-T, uh, Rational Emotive Behavioral Therapy. When you do like the A-B-C-D-E model of like activating event behavioral challenge, uh, challenging belief disputation, because what we're talking about is like, my my wife's not picking up the phone. She must not love me anymore. Or And we're jumping to these conclusions. We're catastrophizing a lot. And I like that you said, don't always trust your brain because mm-hmm. there are, there are always... I don't want to use blanket statements either. There are often alternative explanations for behavior.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Wait, so are you saying you don't typically like CBT, but you do like that CBT exercise?
0: Yeah. I like that exercise because it allows you to say like, what's the activating event? Okay. Uh She doesn't pick up the phone. My immediate reaction is she doesn't love me anymore right? Like, and then you kind of process it through that lens of like, but what are the other scenarios here be for not picking up the phone?
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you say that because I'm with you and that like, I, I tend to not default to CBT, especially for neurodivergent or anyone who's had a marginalized experience in the world. Cause I think it can be really invalidating, but then yeah. there's these tools from CBT that I really like. And I'm like, well, if you put it in context, this can actually be really helpful. And I don't want us to like throw the baby out with the bathwater. So I'll I'll talk about that too, like putting your thoughts through a reality filter, yep. um, and that there's certain questions you can ask to be like, okay, is this thought helpful to me right now? Is it like, yeah, am I? Are there cognitive distortions that are like influencing this? So kind of that detect detective work of like, let me become a detective of my own mind and my own experience and my own thoughts. Right. Which even just the act of stepping outside of the experience into that observing detective. Ideally, non-evaluative, non-judgmental mode is therapeutic, no matter exactly. where we land on the reality filter of the thought.
0: Absolutely, yeah. And I'll just piggyback on my statement of saying I'm not a fan of CBT. I know how harmful it is for marginalized communities and for neurodivergent folks. In, I'll oh, we could go into we have a we could have a whole episode on therapeutic modalities that don't work well for neurodivergent human beings, but there are if you put it through that lens and i like that you use that word you can start becoming that detective you can start like taking that step back because it's really helpful when it feels like almost everything is creating this intensification of experiences that leaves you feeling like you're you're not able to participate in your life because you you just feel like you can't put yourself out there or you can't you know, speak your mind, or you feel like you just can't show up the way you want to show up. And I think that's really challenging for a lot of ND folks too, is like, if I can't show up authentically, that really feels uncomfortable and it feels really painful too.
1: Yeah. I mean, so that, I mean, that then ties into like masking an RSD, which that could be its own, like complex conversation. Of yeah, if masking helps reduce RSD, you could see how like, okay, I'm going to say this, but then I'm going to unpack it. Masking becomes a form of self-care. And I don't mean that masking is actually self-care, but like in that option of like, I'm either going to like spiral, like the fear of I'm going to spiral with RSD because I'm going to show up authentically. And it's, you know, the fear it's not going to be perceived well, or I'm going to mask. I could see how for someone masking feels like the less energy cost of the two. And again, that's assuming that masking is like a choice, which it often is not, but It's just that is an interesting, like, yeah, the masking RSD dynamic.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I think we could take this in a variety of ways, and I think we could talk about, like, partnership and RSD. I think we could talk about so many different avenues. I also don't know how your energy is, and I want to check on that.
1: No, I, I actually feel like I would like, I feel like I've talked a lot about like content creation in RSD, which is not going to be like the, the majority of people listening to this. So I'd love to, I'd yeah. love to spend some energy to generalize it more to, yeah, relationships, workplace, things like that. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: So let's talk relationships, whether it's, you know, different neurotypes, same neurotype. One person has, a is experiencing RSD, one person's not. That can be really challenging because conflict can arise in relationships and often does. And it can feel really, really painful to feel like you are being critiqued or you feel really vulnerable or you're, you know, feeling like you're spiraling often in conversations with your partner. And yep. I imagine then the other partner would then feel that challenge too of like, I don't even know what I can say.
1: Yes. Yeah. I mean it's I think it's painful for both people involved, right? Because it's if one person feels like I can't like if like they're walking on eggshells, right. That's kind of the famous metaphor. Um, that is not uh, healthy for a relationship. If, if, if there's not the capacity to talk openly about what is happening and if hard conversations spiral into like emotion dysregulation and conflict. So that is a really painful scenario for both partners involved. Yeah, absolutely. Um, This is what with relationships and I'd be curious to kind of like overlay attachment style and RSD and attach again, attachment theory is one that like it gets critiqued for being oversimplified, but I find it a really helpful lens. Even, even with it being, if people know like, okay, this is probably an oversimplification. I still find it a really helpful lens. It's someone who is has RSD and also anxiously attached. Like there there's going to be a, some big emotions when they perceive like an attachment injury or where they perceive they're being criticized yep. um and again kind of I'm mapping I guess is my word today but mapping out what are the attachment styles there's a really great exercise from um EFT therapy it's uh infinity loop I ha- I have a link on my website I could I could link it in our show notes but it's essentially you map out like what happens in the aftermath of an attachment injury? Like what story does each partner start telling? What do they start doing? Right. So some partners will retreat, some will go toward, cause it's like, we have to fix this. Right. Um, but then that activates another story, like a secondary story. So it's, it's this, you, you can map out like, okay, what happens to us in an attachment injury? I think exercises like that become really helpful because then you can understand and name the chaos. Without a map of like, what is happening here? It's really confusing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I think recognizing the attachment style and the pattern and then being able to, again, step back when you're not activated and look at it and say, okay, now I get a sense of like what's happening in these moments because what you don't want to do, like you said, that's it's not a healthy partnership if you're walking on eggshells, if you feel like you can't have communication and it's very different experiences on either side. So each partner is experiencing um, this painfully, but very differently too.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Like I think ideally the rsd could almost be externalized and and be talked about as like a thing in the relationship right like okay we just we just hit an rsd wall or like we just triggered the rsd um i love externalizing both in like individual techniques i do it all the time like with like oh my mind is doing this thing right that's it i'm externalizing i'm i'm making it less connected to me um same thing in relationships when we can externalize it and it's like let's solve let's collaboratively solve the struggle we're experiencing around this rst str- trigger versus you versus me that right. really changes the conversation
0: feels much more like teamwork at that point in time and mm-hmm. going back to your detective analogy before like you're both putting on that detective hat of like how can we solve this together instead of you're injuring me versus i am experiencing our relationship this way.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That makes such a big difference when when partners can do that. Look at it. Like stand side by side, look at the dynamic together versus the, I I see that a lot. So much like accusations. And kind of like I mean our, our narcissism episode just came out. Like so like you are a narcissist or you're gaslighting me. You. Like these huge words get thrown out or can get thrown out when we're looking at the other person as, as the problem versus looking at the dynamic or the issue or the, like the process content versus process, like that's a, that's a communication thing of content when we're locked in the content, which we typically are during an RSD trigger. That means we're locked in like the thing we're talking about process is kind of like bird eye view. Like what is actually happening here? Relationally. Um, You can, Get unhooked from the content enough to have some process conversation, some process reflection. That is so helpful in in relationships.
0: Absolutely, hundred percent. And I think that's also a good transition point into professional relationships, like because mm-hmm. those things happen in the workplace too, and it can happen with your coworkers. It can happen from a um, employee-employer standpoint, and the implications can be pretty pretty huge like you said not trying to go for that promotion that you wanted not talking up in staff meetings because you're going to feel rejected for for how you come across um there are so many ways that this can show up in the workplace too
1: absolutely absolutely and i think it's going to depend like so i talk about well dodson talks about three ways people can respond to rc i've added a fourth one um And I have like a little matrix up of like the different ways people can typically respond to RSD. So workplace stress is going to depend on like, what is your kind of default response? So like, um, perfectionism is, is a really common response to RSD. Like if I just never make a mistake, then I'm fine. No one's ever (laughs) going to perceive any criticism, right? It's it's totally logical, except it's not because we're going to make mistakes. Um, people pleasing. So kind of like I put that in under the fawn mode, like perpetual people pleasing like reading like what does this person want from me and a a lot of people with rsd become really good at like kind of taking in a person figuring out exactly who they want the person to be i think that and ties back into masking and other things um and then avoidance so just like i'm gonna avoid putting myself out there i think that's the one we've talked about the most in this episode and then the one i added is the like projector or someone who gets like fight mode when when they're perceiving rejection. Um, so yeah, workplace, if you're a perfectionist, people pleaser with RSD in the workplace, you're going to burn out really fast. Yep.
0: Yeah. It's going to look like workaholism, right. And you're going to be potentially putting in extra hours that are unnecessary. You're going to be taking on additional tasks that you don't really have the capacity for, or don't want to do. Um, and you're going to be one of those employees potentially that goes above and beyond for everything and then ultimately it's like fuck i i can't do this job anymore this is not manageable for me this is not yeah. sustainable
1: yeah and i think we like i think you and i were probably both in that category um and i think that then resentment can come in like yeah. um so it's a i would say it's like a more low simmer chronic rsd response right cuz w- there's this illusion of i can yeah, evade rejection if I just work harder. But then the resentment that builds up, the burnout that bur- that builds up. Um, absolutely. Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And then it leads to either termination or it leads to quitting a job that may have you may have been able to navigate or find some accommodation for. And it can be really challenging. I think that if we're looking at the whole person, this is so impactful interpersonally, in relationships, in employment places, employment places, places of employment, Jeez Louise. Um, but it's so impactful. So knowing the triggers, like you said, getting, implementing some of these soothing strategies for your nervous system, being able to have these conversations, being able to externalize. I think there are a lot of good strategies that you're naming and mentioning right now.
1: Yeah, yeah. And then, um, well, so for the avoiders, right? Like getting out of the avoidance loop, which a lot of, it's interesting. A lot of anxiety-based treatments are all about targeting avoidance because avoidance feeds anxiety. Right. So I would add that tool for the avoiders. And again, especially with the workplace, like avoiders are probably going to be underemployed. They're not going to be going up for that promotion. They're not going to be putting themselves out there and, So really targeting avoidance, using exposure. So I, oh gosh, it's going to be a whole other episode. I actually, I feel some guilt about this because I think I used to be one of the voices that said this and I'm now seeing it on social media a lot. Like exposure therapy doesn't work for autistic people. Um, Exposure therapy doesn't work for sensory habituation, but that doesn't mean it doesn't work for PTSD triggers, for anxiety. So we have to get out of this, I think it's a dangerous mindset to say exposure therapy doesn't work for autistic people. Um, right. when you're in an anxious driven avoidance loop, you absolutely have to do exposure. It can be na like, it can be natural. It should be led by you. But, um, so for that person, ex- exposure and addressing the anxiety would be a really important part of the toolkit.
0: Why do you name that? I think that's, that's a really good tip and also good framework for, the, the recognition that in some instances certain techniques and strategies are useful, like we said before, despite not being useful as like a, a blanket statement or across the board.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm starting to become more gentle in my language use. Like I I think I used to be like this kind of therapy is bad. Like I used I used to say like CBT is bad for autistic people. Um, I'm now more around like things need to be adapted. Right. Yes. So you, you do adapt exposure therapy when you do it for an autistic person, 1000%. You should, if you're using CBT, you should adapt it and consider the marginalized experiences. Um, so I'm kind of like, yeah, I'm changing my my narrative a little bit and how I talk about it. I'm softening it to talk more about adapting and less about what's good and what's bad.
0: I think it's also important to like differentiate between taking one simple Tool or technique or strategy from something, opposed to saying, like, okay, CBT as a whole, we don't like it. But this one technique really is useful if we adapt it in a neurodivergent, affirmative way. And I think that you could do that with a lot of different therapeutic interventions and modalities.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Usually three as in a row from you is like, all right, let's uh, transition out. So, is that where we're at?
1: I, I don't know. I mean, I I don't know how long we've been recording. I it, you're right. Like you said this before we started recording because we were both feeling really lousy. They and I was like, I don't know if this will be a an good episode. You're like, usually when I start talking, it like works. I, I I feel like I could talk longer, but I also feel like I could be done. Um, I don't know. What are you feeling?
0: I feel the same way. I think we've been recording now for about forty five minutes. So good luck. Probably- good length of time. And I think it's a good foundational episode to then build off of for different perspectives. I think we could also have people on here to talk about their own RSD experiences and how it shows up and how they how they work through it or try to manage and, and support themselves. Um so I think we can go a lot of directions with this.
1: Yeah. And I, I mean I love we should definitely do a like um answer questions follow-up because I think people have a lot of questions around this topic and yeah that.
0: I will say I didn't think about even asking for questions for the episode until like 10 minutes before we started recording (laughs) we got like six questions immediately so I think that with another day or two we could compile all that and we can address that um the next time we record
1: let's do that
0: cool well um for those of you who don't know megan and i haven't recorded in like three and a half weeks because i've been gone and i just appreciate being able to fall back into this and feel even though we feel crappy like connected in that way so just want to thank you for that yeah. and what was i gonna say
1: my I brain is so... out every Friday on all major platforms spotify <laughs> Apple.
0: what megan just said um new episodes are out every single Friday. If you have topic requests, if you have questions you want answered, please email our, our Gmail address that's attached to our Instagram, which is Podcast at gmail.com. We do read those. We don't always respond because we just don't always have the capacity or the spoons to do so. Um, And new episodes are out every single Friday on all major platforms and YouTube And Megan has a 170-page workbook on RSD that you can uh, purchase from her website at NeuroDiversionInsights.com, and that will be linked in the show notes as well. And now, pause for a word from our sponsors. From new patients faced with an empty lobby and no idea where to find their therapist to clinicians with a session running overtime and the doorbell ringing, some of the most anxiety-ridden moments of a therapy appointment happen before a session even starts. This episode's sponsor, The Receptionist for iPad, helps you tackle some of that pre-appointment apprehension and anxiety. The Receptionist for iPad is an easy-to-use digital client check-in system that helps your visitors check in securely to their appointments and notify their practitioners of their arrival via SMS, email, or your preferred channel. No more confusion, endless lobby checking, or having clients sign in on paper logbooks. It can even help you upgrade and update your demographic information for your clients as well and even validate parking. Start a 14-day free trial of The Receptionist for iPad by going to thereceptionist.com slash private practice. Make sure to start your trial with that link and you'll also get your first month free if you decide to sign up.